Hey everybody, the sermon this week is going to be a little bit different um, in that we had a technical difficulty last Sunday during our actual service, so I'm going to share briefly <clears throat> um, the message here. On my phone, I got the iPad, I got a cup of coffee, and so we're just going to have a conversation um, out of our series where we're looking at the the radical shape of hospitality in the kingdom of God. Um, last week we looked at Luke chapter 9 where Jesus welcomes um, the child and says, anyone who welcomes this child um, welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And so we're looking in our series um, called Your Welcome. And we're going to continue this week in Luke's Gospel. So if you're following along, why don't you open up your Bible or your Bible app to Luke chapter 5. This is a a really compelling story. And like all stories, it's so exciting um, because we can see ourselves, depending upon the day, playing the role of all the different Um, players and pieces within the gospel stories. And so I just encourage you to open your heart and allow your imagination just to get caught up in in the telling of the story. We're going to look specifically at the calling of Levi, the tax collector. But but before that, just for the sake of context, I'm going to start reading with verse 12 of Luke chapter 5. I apologize. Um, Verse 17. Luke chapter 5. One day, Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee, and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. So just to recap the story, 
obviously Jesus is teaching. And as he often finds throughout the Gospels, this is one of the first times in Luke's Gospel, he's surrounded by people who some love him, some hate him, some are skeptical, some are desperate for a miracle, um, some are absolutely opposed. And in Jesus' day, we have to understand and remember that um, they are experiencing incredible um, oppression, uh, the Jewish people being surrounded and occupied by Rome. And so everyone in the first century had sort of their version or the story that narrated their life of how the God of Israel would come and make things right once and for all. So for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, it was all about sort of moralistic purity. It was about rugged obedience to the law, so much so that they invented all of these extra laws that would keep them from breaking the laws behind the laws. And the teachers of the law um, were, were in cahoots with the Pharisees. And so this group, even though they, they often get a bad rap in the Gospels, their, their heart for, for purity and to become the people that Messiah would come and rescue because they were pure and prepared for him, their heart was, man, I mean, I, I'd rather have someone err toward that um, than just, you know, sowing the wild oats and saying, oh, let God's kingdom come however it wants or whenever it wants. And so these are very upright people. And yes, as many of us can identify with, hypocritical at times, or, um, but they, they found themselves seeing this, this rabbi, this carpenter, this, this man from Nazareth going around announcing the kingdom, going around calling people to repentance, going around healing. And so this version of the kingdom was radically different than their version of the kingdom about what it would mean for God to come to rule, to reign, and to make things right in the land and in the people of Israel. And so the story is just stunning where um, some buddies or friends of a friend who's paralyzed hear that Jesus is in the house, literally, and they find no room, obviously, pretty, pretty familiar, famous story. And so they decide to bust up a guy's roof. It's just a beautiful thing. Um, we could just stop right there and say, man, do, are you a friend like that? Or do you have friends like that? Do I have friends like that? Am I a friend like that? That would be willing to go to any length necessary to bring someone I love who is in desperate need of a touch from Jesus to Jesus. And so they, they bust up a guy's roof. They lower him down on his mat. And Jesus sort of, uh, he sees their faith, but then speaks to the individual man who was carried um, literally and by the faith of these other men. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Just this powerful illustration of this corporate entity called faith that, you know, we, we, we talk so much about personal private faith, but man, to be a part of a, a community, a people of faith is such a powerful dynamic reality that Jesus uh, invites us into. And, um, and so we see, obviously, the Pharisees think he's crazy, he's a blasphemer. 
Um, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, uh, whoops, knows their thoughts, knows our thoughts. He knows what we're thinking. And so he has a showdown. What's easier, to say sins are forgiven or to say to a paralytic, get up and walk? And, and the implication here, and, and so many times we reduce the gospel to just as it pertains to forgiveness or righteousness or justification or being made right with God. And obviously the gospel involves these things, but man, what's easier to God to forgive us of our sin or to heal us of our sickness or disease? And the reality is these things go hand in hand. But because Jesus is being questioned, he is saying, neither Neither are hard or difficult. When the kingdom of God is breaking in, God is ruling and reigning and having his way. And so Jesus, by, by saying, I want you guys to know that the Son of Man, which was always, almost always how Jesus referred to himself. Um, you can go look in Daniel chapter 7 and see some background about what, sort of how weighty this title was in the ears and hearts and minds and lives of um, Jesus' contemporaries, when he would use this language of son of man, who would be able to sort of wreak havoc on the enemies of God. And and uh, clearly to Jesus, one of the enemies that need to be overcome, that need to be broken, one of the strongholds is the issue of sin and sickness. And so Jesus rises up and says, get up. And the paralyzed guy gets up, he walks, just an un believable story. Verse 26, we have seen remarkable things today. And so let's, that's the background, this just incredible story about the authority, the power of communal faith, of desperate faith that really lets nothing, including a roof, get in the way of, of getting to the feet of the one who has all authority and power. And so after this story, we come to um, the text I want us to really press into this week as a church family, starting with verse 27. Remember, we're in a series that's called Your Welcome and the, the radical shape of kingdom hospitality. After this, the story we just read, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So last week I, I stumbled upon a documentary um, by Matt Damon, and I'm not recommending it, and I'm not not recommending it, but just a fascinating documentary on the the housing market collapse in 2007, 2008. And it's uh, just, it's just staggering to see the, that there really are no lengths to which man or, or woman will go 
in the name of greed to possess, to grasp a hold for more, for more, for more. I mean, at the expense of millions of people's um, homes and lives. And just seeing uh, Matt Damon, he, he there's tons of interviews and he narrates this whole story of how it happened. And, and um, I found myself as I watched this documentary of uh, just the total corruption in the bank systems and the um, the big bad you know guys on and gals on on Wall Street and I, I found myself um, not having the fondest thoughts I'll say mildly toward these guys and just the audacity and the, the anger that I felt in my in my heart and just the the ruthlessness and just the reality of the government bailout and almost all of these CEOs from from these banking and investment firms leave with just tens of thirties and fifties, you know, some hundreds of millions of dollars. They walk with money. They just walk. They're able to give themselves bonuses and just total corruption, just thinking, man, how could they? And I just found myself so, so wrapped up and, and just flat out anger um, by these extortionists, these thieves. And then this was last Saturday night. I, I walked into Cornerstone and I, I'm preaching this text about a tax collector. And I'm like, man, Lord, that's odd that I, I uh, stumbled upon that documentary in light of the, the text we're going to look at briefly together. And, and the reality is this. So last week in, in Luke chapter 9, we sort of heard one side of the kingdom uh, hospitality story of, of welcoming the, the least, the lowly, the ignored, the, uh, the marginalized, the, the children. And all that the, they literally represent children, but all that, all of those at the fringes of, of culture and society that we shoo away or we push away to the fringes. But this story, again, same series, same kingdom. Um, there's a guy on the opposite end of the spectrum, very much like, uh, maybe not to the um, economical extent, but like the banker, this tax collector named Levi, who, um, you know, no one has ever necessarily loved tax collectors. Um, but especially during the first century where they were viewed as traitors because they were in bed with, uh, with Rome, the occupying, um, just force of their day. Um, you know, and, and that they had to associate with them. And so there's the other side, not only are they traitors, but they're, they're impure, they're, they're shady, they run with people um, because of their status in, in, their, in their cultural context, if not really being loved. They obviously, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And so um, these are not guys that anyone really wants to hang out with. And so Jesus, after healing this paralyzed guy, everyone's just stunned. He's, he rolls up to this tax collector with the name of Levi, and he says, follow me. And his response is just stunning. He gets up, he leaves everything and follows him. Apparently, he didn't um, part with his bank account because then he throws a huge banquet for Jesus. And it's just so, just the story's amazing. And um, so first, I mean, one of the questions that the Pharisees are constantly, it's sort of like their overwhelming question in their heart. In Jesus' day and in, in the Jewish imagination of the first, first century, the, the question really was, you know, sort of throughout Israel's history, where is the holiest place on earth? Where is the place that God dwells? And so um, 
especially for the Pharisees, there's sort of this threefold sequence, um, just overwhelmingly influenced their lives. And it was this, it was performance. So for them, it was total legalism, um, above and beyond law keeping. It was performance for the sake of being able to participate as one of God's um, chosen people. And then it was about proximity. Um, so they could share in temple life and they performed right so that they could participate and be a part of what it means to be the people of God and ultimately proximity so that they could be pure enough to get close enough to where they thought God was dwelling. So performance, participation, proximity. But we see here, and part of why there's a showdown and the audacious question, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're just overwhelmed with Jesus and his disciples. Again, everyone has a vision of how they think the kingdom comes, whether you're religious or not, the idea of the good life or the flourishing life. We all have our own thoughts and ideas. And so for Jesus, we, you know, a little bit of brief Bible history. Um, God obviously walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's, it's beautiful, a dynamic partnership, communion. Um, I mean, God is walking with them in the cool of the day. Just a beautiful description. In every sense, this is a garden temple where God and humanity just walk and enjoy and um, fellowship together. And obviously we know in chapter 3 of Genesis, the fall. And so, you know, we sort of see the spin out in reality of human rebellion, chapters 3, really through the rest of the book, but specifically through 11, the height of Babel, and then God calls a family he calls a man who at this point doesn't have a family really and named Abraham Abram at the time in chapter 12 and then he tells this guy that your descendants are going to be more than the stars and the sand on the seashore I'm going to bless you those who bless you will be blessed and they your people will be a blessing to all the nations this huge vision of human flourishing that God gives this man Abram and then 400 some odd years later God raises up a deliverer in Moses. Moses leads the people of God um, with a staff. And God is with him. And as soon as they come to the mountain in Exodus 19, that promise that I want you to be a kingdom of priests, I want you guys, the whole nation, to serve me and to mediate my presence to the world, what it looks like to orient your life around me at the center, me as your Lord, and um, and then God gives them measurements and they build this this mobile tabernacle, just this beautiful picture um, of God dwelling again with his people. So when the when the cloud by day leads them, they are led when it stops, they stop and the fire by night leads them. They they follow when it stops, it stops. And God is at the center of the community. And then um Israel asks for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And Samuel's just distraught. God says, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. 
And so first king fail, mega fail, King Saul. And then we have David, who God, the New Testament writers say, um, is a man after God's own heart in the book of Acts. And, and so it's in David's heart to build God, not a mobile tabernacle where he dwells, sort of as a, uh, as a transient, but as in, in his heart was to establish a permanent dwelling place for God in Jerusalem. And um, it's actually David's son Solomon who gets to build this permanent place for God to dwell, the holiest place on earth. Well, as you may know, if you have any exposure or experience with the scriptures, this is very, very short-lived. The, the kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel splits, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And um, it's just one long perpetual story of rebellion, some repentance, some revivals through some of Judah's kings, but ultimately Assyria um, takes the northern kingdom exiled, and then ultimately Babylon comes and takes Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, into exile. And so the, the temple is utterly destroyed, desecrated. And so everyone's like, whoa. And uh, God um, gives favor to some of the exiles, and under the, the pagan king, he releases um, some of the people to go back and to start the rebuilding process. This temple, the second temple, it's called, um, was was rebuilt, and then King Herod, the wannabe puppet king of um, the Jewish people, sort of... Um, wants to do like a temple extreme home makeover. And so he, he, he beautifies and really just tries to make this temple something that everyone talks about. And the only thing is between second temple and the time of Jesus and King Herod is that God never goes back to the building. And the, the prophet Ezekiel really helps us here when he sees the spirit lift from the temple because of the rebellion and sin of Israel, and leave. And so here's this building in, in Jerusalem that for the Pharisees and for so many, it was about performance for the sake of participating, for the sake of proximity. So that, but Jesus, um, John picks up on this and says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory again, the idea of God and his presence, his radiance, his holiness, his glory. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten son came from the father, full of grace and truth. So we have building in Jerusalem, but no presence. And then we have God in flesh in Jesus and Jesus flips the equation. For Jesus, the reality is everywhere he goes, it's all about proximity. If you've seen me, you've seen him. He tells Philip in John 14. And why Jesus can say what's harder to forgive or to say to the paralyzed man, walk. Jesus is in, in every sense mediating the 
the person, the power, the presence, the provision of God everywhere he goes. He's announcing and demonstrating the reign, the rule, and the reality of God's kingdom. He is the king of the kingdom. And so he calls Levi, this tax collector, to follow him. And so for Jesus, it's not about performance so you can participate so that you can be close or proximity. It's about, I'm bringing God. I am God. I'm bringing the reality of close proximity of God into, into the situation to bear in your life. I'm inviting you to participate. And then ultimately, as you participate, performance, it's not performance. It's I'm inviting you to repentance, to declaring that I am the king and aligning yourselves with my will, my purposes, and I'm inviting you to participate. It's just unbelievable how Jesus completely flips the narrative. He is God walking among us, and then he invites us to participate, to, to eat and to drink, and then ultimately calls us to repentance, um, not performance, but to acknowledge that he is the true king of the world. And so Levi leaves everything. Um, uh, someone said that, you know, you may not be able to reach the world through the lane or the channel of guilt, guilting them into the reality that they are filthy or they're a sinner or far from God. And because many don't believe in a God or they don't believe in consequences, even though there are consequences to our choices, but we sort of are really good at living autonomous, self-centered, self-focused lives. And, but, um, Everyone can identify with the reality of shame. We think about our choices. We think about the isolation that comes from our choices, um, the impulse to isolate and to hide and to cover our inner reality with outward fluff and straw and hay and just... We all understand the reality of shame because of our sin, because of our choices. And so the fact that this man called Jesus stops and actually identifies long enough with Levi to say, follow me. I mean, I just, it's stunning. Levi gets up immediately. And maybe he thinks, here's a way out of my shame. Here's a way out. I'm sick of being the brunt of everyone's joke. I'm sick of being hated, being ostracized. I'm sick of um, being an extortionist and just pillaging my own people in the name of my bottom line or my net worth. And so he throws a huge banquet, a great banquet, Scripture says in verse 29, and Jesus is there in the thick of it. Here again, proximity. God is at this table. Um, being welcomed by Levi and his, his uh, homies, and he's just eating what they're giving him, drinking and eating with these, um, <laughs> again, back to the documentary, despised, uppity um, extortionists, just greedy. And so so much easier to love sort of the least of these than um, <laughs> the greatest of these, the, the, the haves. It's, you know, we all love the underdog and the have-nots. And here Jesus is identifying also with those that are broken at the top. And the Pharisees asked the ultimate question, why spend time with these tax collectors and sinners? 
And Jesus tells us, you guys, you, you need to understand something about my kingdom. No one any longer, um, because of their bottom line or their pedigree or their identity or their background is just automatically in my kingdom. In other words, no one is healthy. Everyone needs a doctor, and I am that doctor. I've come to call the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the reason this is so audacious, so scandalous, if you are a Pharisee, is just the issue of self-righteousness, the, the, the reality that so many of us, religious or not, um, hold ourselves or we have these inner dialogues and expectations of what we believe should um, dictate a good life or what, what, um, what rules are for us and what rules aren't for us. And we, we are just constantly having this inner dialogue with ourselves being the, the judge and the ones who not only look at ourselves, but then we superimpose those ideas, those thoughts of um, what is good or what is right or what is bad. And, and the Pharisees, um, in, every, in every reality, totally believe that they're righteous because of their rule-keeping. And, and Jesus, sort of in a, you know, not through the front door, but side door, is saying, you don't understand. I. Everyone is sick. No one is healthy in and of themselves. But the good news is that I'm the doctor. And I'm, I'm not afraid of the filth and the shame and the guilt or the story of whatever your life is or has, has been up to this point. I've, I'm the doctor and I've come for you. I'm not, you know, so many times like, Doctors in, in many ways are amazing in the sense that they, they spend their time with sick people. <laughs> and again, back to the Pharisees, it was about performance to participate for proximity. And Jesus is ushering in and modeling this, this, the radical upside-down nature of true holiness. And that is that who we are on the inside cannot be affected by those around us on the outside when we're when we're truly in God's kingdom we are not um to put it in in modern terms we are we are not thermometers that go up and down with the weather or the the heat or the cold of our surroundings but we're we're called to be like Jesus thermostats where we change culture, we change the atmosphere. And in every sense, Jesus is saying, the reason I'm able to eat and to drink is because the reality is no one is righteous but one. No one deserves to eat at the table with God. No one could afford the cover charge to get into this banquet that I'm throwing and then in Luke's gospel I'm constantly giving foreshadow pictures of what is yet to come and the great banquet at the end and and so Jesus is totally freed to love and to serve and to share life 
with those who are far from God because he knows no one in and of themselves can fix themselves. No one deserves, no one um, has a perfect track record. And those are the very ones Jesus comes for, for you, for me. And he has a, a table set and a plate and a, uh, a place for you and for me to sit with him and to experience his grace. And as we realize the, the call to repentance and to stop believing the lie that we run the, wor- the world or that the world revolves around us, but that there is a God, there is one who is truly the king. His name is, is Jesus. And one of the things I love that Luke uses the, the name Levi instead of Matthew, same guy, one of Jesus' disciples, is that it reminds me of the, the priestly um, tribe of Israel, the Levites, who had the, the, the charge to mediate the needs of the people to God and then the provision, peace, and presence of God to the people. And, you know, this, this picture of what God wanted for the entire nation but was relegated to one tribe. And here, Levi, the, the guy no one would have expected is hosting and mediating the presence and person of God in Christ Jesus to his friends. <laughs> and it's so cool. The first place we, we see where to follow Jesus is into our homes, to those that we already know, that we love, and mediate the presence of God there. And now it's Levi. It's not mediating God in a temple or a tabernacle, but it's a table. And the temple has become a table. Jesus is ushering in an entirely new kind of priesthood. He's completely altering the way we experience the proximity or closeness of God and that we're invited to participate. And then instead of performance, he calls us to repentance, which leads to a life that's transformed by the grace of God. And Jesus, he embodies a a radical new kind of holiness and he moves the boundary line and the marker of where one should expect to meet with God from a temple to a table. And so my, my hope and my prayer for you today is to realize you too, whether you're the child from last week and you feel you identify being on the margins or the least, or maybe you are a person of affluence and you... You have all your stuff, quote-unquote, on the outside that looks like it's put together, but inside you know a deep shame or guilt or emptiness. And I want you to know Jesus is not afraid to be identified with people like me and people like you. He invites us to follow him and to feast with him. He calls us to repentance, but he's already spanned the uncrossable distance between us and God. He's come for us, the sick, and he's healing us. He's calling us to partake in the gift of repentance, to experience newness of life and a totally new identity. So how will you respond? Remember, you are welcome at Jesus' table.